0: Our phone lines are open and if you have a question you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area call toll free 877-924-7980 now let's join dr carl brogi study
1: and show yourself approved of god as a workman who is not ashamed handling accurately the word of truth we welcome you this hour to the bible line and as always it's a pleasure to be here if you have specific questions on God's Word as it relates to your life or ministry uh, or uh, just life issues that you want biblical counsel on, all you need to do is call us. The number locally is 843-525-1859. The 843 Exchange, and it's 525-1859. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question to our volunteer, and she'll pop it up here on the screen. People also email us, and we've got a ton of email that has come in here, and you can email us at TBL, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. And uh, we're happy to receive it that way. Sometimes people are at work and they say, you know, I've got a question. I want to ask it, but I really can't in good conscience sit there and listen to it. And so, uh, you know, call it in. And if we don't get to it when it is answered, if you left us an email address, you'll be contacted uh, back to say, hey, your question was answered today, and Rick lists all the questions for each Bible line. You can see, oh yeah, mine's the seventh question of the day, and you don't even have to listen to all the other answers. You can kind of just scan through the bar until your question at hand comes up. Anyway, that's where we are at. Again, eight four three Let's go ahead and Rick, and we'll jump in this morning.
0: All right, Pastor, we've got a number of people already calling in, so let's go to our first live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Hi,
1: thanks for calling. How can we be of help today?
0: Hello, Pastor Brogy. Um, It's a pleasure to talk to you. I I have a question for you I struggle with. Uh, Years ago, I got real sick with Lyme disease, and they never caught it in time. So my ability to concentrate and retain information is very difficult, and I struggle because I'm, I'm sick and I'm stuck in my house, and I struggle with not being able to get into God's Word, and I don't want—I want to learn, and I don't know how, and I've been asking God to heal my memory and, and all that, but it's, it's very difficult, and at this point I'm not able to get to church because my spine and everything is a, is a, is a problem. And
1: so I just wanted a little bit of godly advice. Yeah, wow. Thank you for calling and sharing uh, your struggles and what you've been through. And very, very, very difficult. Um, Obviously, we live in a fallen world and things happen for different reasons, but none escape the notice of God Almighty. But Christians and non Christians alike can suffer from, say, a natural disaster. If I can sometimes take an example and magnify it, then we can step back and see how it relates to our life. And I think about the um, issue that Jesus brought up in Luke's gospel, where there were some people who, you know, wanted to know why did such and such happen if if they were indeed a righteous people. Let me read it to you. He says, now on the same occasion, there." were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you all will also perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them we're worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so he's reminding us, you know, there's different kinds of suffering that comes into the world. There's what we call uh, common suffering, there's carnal suffering, and then there's what we might call Christian suffering. You have experienced a trial that I think would come under the umbrella of common suffering. And it's common in that it is indiscriminate. It affects uh, both the just and the unjust. Uh, Tragedy very often is indiscriminate. A tornado came through Dallas a couple days ago, and fortunately no one was killed. But, you know, one believer was on the air and, you know, had a great perspective, I thought. But just talking about the total loss and destruction of their home, uh, does that make them less righteous than... You know, someone who's an unbeliever and even hates God and their home was untouched. No, not at all. And so tragedy can be indiscriminate. It falls in the just and the unjust. And certainly something like being bitten by a tick, and if if that's the genesis of your Lyme disease, you know, it can happen to a believer and to an unbeliever. And so one, look at the big picture. Uh, God will give you a life story from that. Uh, you have the opportunity, one, to show that you are obedient and that you give thanks in all things, and that while all things that happen to you are not good, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are um, not called, but more specifically, the called. It looks like a verb in most of our Bibles. It's actually a noun. To those who are the called, he's speaking of a specific group of people namely born-again believers, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So to be able from your life story to say, you know, we live in a fallen world, and I hate it that I got bit by this tick and I got Lyme disease because of it, and it's created challenges for me, but I believe that God is still good, that he works all things together for good, um, and he's going to use this somehow in my life. That in and of itself is a tremendous testimony uh, of of your perspective on God. And God can use that, you know, like he used the Johnny Erickson Tata, who for most of her life, I think she was 18 when she jumped into the, uh, into the lake there uh, in Chesapeake, Virginia, and hit her head on a stone and was paralyzed from the neck down. And God's used her testimony all these decades of his goodness in that, Uh, His love is unchanging, even when tragedy comes in the life of a believer. So you have a story to tell. Obviously, the challenge of being able to concentrate as you open the Scriptures. Uh, One good thing is, you know, if you're unable to go to church, you may be aware, of course, that we live stream the services, so you can always watch uh, through communitybiblechurch.us. Every service is live streamed Wednesday nights, along with Sunday morning, both services at nine fifteen and 11. They're identical services. So one, you might listen to it twice. Uh, it might help you to absorb uh, some of the things that are being said. You might also, as you have a heart to study God's Word, uh, go back and download the message later on or watch it on your computer or whatever vehicle you have. Um, and then, uh, and by the way, if you don't have a computer to live stream, what are some of the other options, Rick, for someone to be able to
0: tune into us on Sunday morning? Well, of course we rebroadcast on this radio station Mondays at 11 and, um, we have the, uh, search the scriptures app, as you mentioned, as well as the community Bible church, uh, website, um, and aside from Roku just, how does uh, that work Roku Apple TV yeah. they they yeah. all have apps and uh we even now are on Amazon Fire Stick so um so, Love like
1: that. Roku, you buy a little box what sure. does it cost forty nine ninety
0: nine yeah and so you 're um,
1: able to watch the services uh, as long as you have internet in your home and sure. you watch it on your television, even if you don 't have a computer exactly so there are some avenues that are available to you, and the great thing about the replays is you can go back, you can stop and and let me just say too uh, obviously i 'm an expository preacher, and so my sermons are are very much in depth in the audience that i 'm trying to administer to. Is a broad range from everything from brand new Christians to older, more mature Christians, and everything in between and I tell the kids it 's like uh, it 's like learning math before you can uh, learn to add, you have to learn your numbers before you can multiply, you have to learn the principle of adding and and each piece, you know, geometry, algebra, trigonometry, calculus, builds on the prior piece. And teaching God's Word is a lot like that. In some sermons, I'm just teaching some people who are brand new to the Bible their numbers and other people more challenging things and everything between the uh, the two broad points from the brand new Christian to uh, a very mature, godly Christian who's walked with God. My point in all of that is you can go back, stop it, slow it down, don't worry about what you don't get, but God has something for you. And it's like those kids, I'll say to them, look, God can speak to your heart. I told a little eight-year-old boy the other day in the office, God can speak to your heart if you will ask him to every week. And I encourage him not only to pray for me, but to pray for himself every week that when we start before the sermon in a time of prayer, to cry out in your heart to the Lord and say, Father, speak to me today. And if we are humble, God will speak to us. And when we obey what we know, you'll grow. And so I'll say, don't worry about the things you don't know or understand yet, but obey what you know, and you'll grow and you'll get stronger and stronger. Great question. Appreciate that caller. Let's go to the next.
0: All right. If you have a question on today's Bible line and uh, at the last minute of last week's program, someone called in with this question and they just called in again. So they're listening. Have you ever heard of a book called The Story? And if so, what are your thoughts about it? Well, the story is a new,
1: unabridged unabri- uh, 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 version of the Bible. Zondervan put it out. And so what they attempted to do was to, uh, in 30-some chapters, kind of summarize key points in the Bible. Uh, there's no chapter verse divisions, so to speak, from the Bible. It's just trying to make a systematic read. And then between chapters, they do some transitional points. What do I think about that? I, I'm not really excited about that concept. There's a lot of things that come out just f- to make money. And Zondervan put this out. And I, I've lost respect for Zondervan as a publisher. Uh, they they did some underhanded things some years back. Uh, they came out with a gender-neutral Bible or was approaching uh, that – Uh, publication, and they were challenged by over a 100 Christian leaders and pastors across the country and said, please don't do this. Please don't do it. And they made a promise to Dr. Dobson and a number of other people back then, okay, we won't do it. And they left that meeting lying through their teeth took the next three years, produced the TNIV, which is a gender-neutral Bible, which actually distorts and twists God's Word in a number of places so that it's politically correct. And so they took a lot of the male pronouns that are used in God's Word, him, let's make it a they or a them or whatever, and changing the actual meaning of it. And I actually do a review on the TNIV in my course on bibliology, if you want to see some examples where the Scripture is literally changed in terms of what God said. And more recently, of course, they took the NIV 84, which was a you know a semi-literal translation, decent translation. I'm never a super fan of it for the simple reason that I'm a Bible expositor and it's not literal enough for me, and so a lot of the fine nuance is lost in some of the paraphrasing they do. But more recently, in 2011, on paper, came the new new NIV, which was a blend between the TNIV and the old 84 NIV. And so, again, you know, Zondervan to me has, I've just lost respect for them as a publisher. So the fact that they want to do this thing called the story, what drives it? I'll tell you what drives it, money. What drives Lifeway Books? Money. That's what drives it. That's why, you know, Beth Moore is heralded the way she is because she's a cash cow, for Lifeway Books as was Jen Hatmaker for years and I would never let Jen Hatmaker's Bible studies be used at Community Bible Church and I would explain to some of the women no she's got some quirky things and you know she's on some shaky ground so I don't want to give endorsement to her ministry as it turns out later you know she comes out with Rachel Held Evans giving full endorsement to gay homosexual marriage and then Lifeway Books was forced to take her down You know, but will they take down Beth Moore in light of all the aberrant theology that she teaches? Of course not. She's making them too much money. And uh, I I think Zondervan's motivation is purely money. So one, um, I I don't like the idea of an abridged Bible right off because every text has a context. And so now someone becomes a judge of what passages they think are more significant that we should weave together. And I don't like that position. And this is there's nothing new under the sun, so to speak. The Reader's Digests uh, came out with, in I think 1982, uh, with an abridged Bible. And so you know they were always famous for taking you know major novels and works and abridging them into you know a 400 page novel into you know 40 pages. Well, they decided to do that with the Bible, and of course they went through and took out a lot of the offensive things. Well, you know, if you don't like certain miraculous dimensions of the Bible, just leave them out of your abridged version. So I haven't read the story yet, but one, I don't like the concept. B, I don't like the translation because they're using the new NIV. And I know there's some famous Christians that put their name on the front of it. It doesn't make it right. Look, Franklin Graham, whom I deeply respect, shocked me last week, along with Jerry Falwell Jr., along with Dr. Jeffers, along with Jack Graham, all came out and gave a full-blown endorsement to Paula White's book. Paula White is a heretic. Why? What were those guys thinking? I mean, she's an utter heretic. And, you know, she has all these visions and dreams and direct revelations, not to mention she's lived a life. One, she's a pastor. She's a woman pastor. I mean, where are these guys coming from? She's a woman pastor. Once she shouldn't be doing that. But even if she wasn't a woman pastor, even if she was a woman just teaching woman, women, you know, she's had this lifestyle that's been very controversial. You know, she has an affair with Benny Hinn and breaks up two marriages. She's on her third marriage, maybe fourth. I'm not sure, but at least her third and, you know, she's not like one of these women at the well, ladies, who had a mass conversion and that's all in her past. This is all going on while she's a pastor of a church and why they would endorse her. So, you know, there's some guys who put their names on the front of the story. That doesn't make it a good translation and a good thing to do. So I'm not excited about it just to give you the short answer. Let's go on to the next question.
0: All right, 843 525 If you have a question on today's Bible Line, and I'm just waiting to see if we've got a live caller standing by. I guess not. All right. Um, our next caller would like you to uh, address the following. Um, what is your preferred method of apologetics, presuppositional or evidential? And also, could you comment on uh, Francis Schaefer's presuppositional approach to apologetics?
1: Well, Francis Schaeffer was an interesting man. You know, I... I... I I felt bad for him when his son came out and totally renounced the faith and you know started you know marrying gay people and everything. It's like it went against everything that he stood for. But you know presuppositional apologetics is basically the approach. And let me define apologetics because not everyone listening maybe knows what that word means. It comes from Peter. First uh, Peter 3.15, he says, be ready to make a defense for the hope that's within you. And the word there for defense is apologia. And so we get our term apologetics. And so when we speak of Christian apologetics, we're not saying I'm sorry for something that we believe, but we're giving a reason why we believe what we believe. Now, I pause to say that because our church grows largely by conversion and in our 45 week discipleship class, we spend about 11, 12 weeks on apologetics. And it's a brand new term to the new Christian. And so some Christians would even take offense with what I just said. Why, why are you telling me the basics? It's because they're so out of touch. With dealing with new believers. They've gotten so high and mighty, they have forgotten that sometimes a new believer doesn't even know when it says John 5, 24, that 5 stands for the chapter and 24 stands for the verse. These are all new things to a totally biblically illiterate culture. So presuppositional apologetics is basically the approach to apologetics, which tries to present a rational basis for the Christian faith, And they will try to defend against logical flaws of other worldviews, you know. um, So that's the basic approach that they take. And so let me just pause and talk about apologetics for a second because some people think this is like the answer to all of our problems and many approaches are more philosophical then they are didactic based on what the Scripture does. When the Bible says, give a defense for the hope that's within you, it's giving a reason why we believe what we believe, but that defense needs to be rooted in Scripture. So, for instance, you've got all these, you know, five views on how to prove the existence of God. Um, do you see the Scripture really doing that? Well, at least not with four of the views, but the bible devotes actually about one half of one verse to atheism but paul can help the christian to understand that there is no such thing as an atheist so for someone to go to great lengths beyond the arguments that scripture gives namely that god's existence is seen in the creation and the conscience and I suppose you could add to his general care and creation and to give the, you know, teleological or ontological view for the existence of God is just, I I don't think, uh, there's not a basis for it. It's just not founded in God's Word. In much of what the Scripture is speaking about, when we give a defense for what we believe, what we believe, it's doing it from the Word of God because we believe the Word of God is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. Now we can certainly defend why we believe the Bible is inspired, and God contained within the Bible certain proofs for its divine inspiration. And that, by the way, is the approach I take in my book, "Why I Believe the Bible Is True." That's on Amazon, and I make zero money on it. And the only people who make money on it is Amazon, who sells. I don't want to. I didn't want to jack the price up so that I can line my pockets. I don't believe in peddling God's Word. I don't make any money on the articles that I wrote for Answers in Genesis. The only people who make the money is Answers in Genesis to pay for the ark and other things they're doing there, the three articles I've written in their apologetic series. So – um what I'm trying to say is that there are even, say, within the Bible itself, reasons why we believe what we believe. But you're, you're running down a dead-end street if you think you're going to logically, philosophically, whatever approach you want to take to apologetics, convince someone to come into the kingdom. You're wasting your breath. Either the person's heart is open when they hear the Word of God, which is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword, or it's not And so um, that's the short answer. we got people stacking up here, so let's go to the next live caller.
0: All right, we do have another live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor, for uh, taking my call. Yeah, happy to, my brother. What can I do to help you? Uh, Pastor, I was wondering if you could uh, explain the difference between a, a pilot, a Herod, a Caesar, and I guess an emperor maybe if you could explain the ranking system and what would be like the responsibilities of each office.
1: Yeah, so um, these are great, great questions. And if this is something you want to explore, say, in a little more detail, uh, one of the things that you might do is listen to my series on the Acts of the Apostles. And again, I know there are people who are uh, new to this ministry, so let me just say that We have uh, an app, and it's called uh, Search the Scriptures. And if you go to the App Store, um, you can download it on your phone. And any book of the Bible or any sermon, generally, every sermon I've preached is uh, there on that app. So if you, for instance, listen to my sermon on Acts chapter 12... It's in that sermon where I deal with uh, the structure, so to speak. So think about the Roman government like an umbrella. And the metal point at the very top represents Caesar, who's the ruler of the political world at the time. And then think about the spokes sections as provinces with rulers who report basically to Caesar. So, for instance, one of the most famous provinces that's highlighted in the Bible is Israel. Uh, we used to call it Palestine uh, based on the name the pagan emperor gave it around 135, uh, Emperor Hadrian, where he renamed the country. But it's called Israel in the Bible. Palestine's more of a pagan name. I don't think we should even put Palestine over the, the maps. But sometimes for identification purposes— We'll refer to it with that uh, late or early 2nd century name. But one of the most famous um, particular uh, provinces is Israel. And Israel is ruled by the Herods. Uh, Most of us know at least of Herod the Great. There are actually seven Herods who come into the pages of Scripture. Herod the Great, most of us know him. He's the one who sought to kill the Lord Jesus when he was just a baby. And to make sure he had his bases covered, he ordered all the babies two and under uh, executed in Bethlehem. And Jesus was probably about six months old. Uh, but of course, he's warned and he flees. Herod Antipas. Well, then after a Herod, the great dies. There's Herod Archelaus, and Herod Archelaus is the Herod who, when Joseph flees from Egypt and it appears that he is then going back to Judea he's warned don't go to that go to uh the galilean region so he ends up going back to Nazareth you could see why he might not want to go back to Nazareth because you know Mary is already accused of being immoral and all the logistics that would go with that and that's a rumor that hung around even when Jesus had begun his public ministry. They're still accusing that. They say, well, we weren't born of porneia, fornication. Uh, But there's Herod Archelaus, and he's a second major Herod. Probably the most well-known Herod for most of us is Herod Antipas, beyond Herod the Great, and that he is the one that Jesus stands before. He and Pilate go back and forth. And some of these guys like to have the designation king put in front of them. And the reason behind that, King Herod, who is Herod Antipas, he likes to be called a king, but he's not a king in the truest sense, in that uh, he is not a king appointed by God to rule Israel. But having a little bit of Jewish blood in him, he appoints that title to himself. When uh, his grandson Herod Agrippa I comes to the throne, he is not given that uh, opportunity by the Roman government to put the name king in front of his name. So there are seven different Herods, Herod the Great, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II, and so forth. Uh, Herod Philip, Herod Philip II. Um, So these are different leaders, and some of them have leadership over an entire province like Herod Antipas, but then you have a Herod who is over a certain section and that's called a tetrarch and a tetrarch is from a word that means a quarter so he's given um like Philip a he's called Philip the tetrarch he's given leadership over a particular section so again think of Caesar at the top think of uh the spokes of the umbrella as various provinces within those provinces there are different titles that are given to either a section of the province or the whole province. And um, the term king uh, is a self-appointed title, but the Roman government didn't take it away from him, but he's a leader over a particular province, namely Israel. And so the Caesar and the Herods are the two most important titles that come into scripture, Tetrarch being maybe the tertiary Uh, title that's important to us. So those are the three to kind of get fixed in your mind. All right, good question. Let's go to
0: the next. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next caller says he attends a church that teaches that African-Americans are the true Jews. How would you answer people who believe that? Well, it's just not
1: true. Um, It's uh, based on a premise that the uh, there are 12 tribes and 10 of them were lost. And then some have argued that, uh, amongst the lost tribes are African, uh, people who then migrated to America and that they are, uh, Jewish descendants of these lost tribes. And it's just not true. Number one, the, the tribes weren't lost. Uh, they were never lost. If you remember, they were initially carried away by the Babylonians. The ten northern tribes uh, form, after the split of the kingdom, uh, Israel and the two southern tribes, Judah, and the two southern tribes are carried away by the Babylonians. Uh, Then the Assyrians come down in 722 BC, and they carry away the ten northern tribes. Now, think about the ten northern tribes. When Jeroboam comes to the throne... He wants to establish a new center of worship, though God said the only place they were to worship was in Jerusalem, where he sanctified a spot. Today, we call it the Temple Mount, where the temple stood, that that's where they were supposed to worship. And he told Jeroboam, if he would just obey what God had revealed, that God would even bless him as a king. But Jeroboam, in his unbelief, thought, well, if the Jewish people in these 10 northern tribes go and worship down in Jerusalem, and there were, according to Deuteronomy sixteen sixteen, there were three times a year when a pious Jew had to go to Jerusalem to worship, that some of them might stay there and not come back. And so in his unbelief, he created two new centers of worship, one where the tribe of Dan had migrated. And uh, so we were just there not long ago. Uh, three weeks ago, we stood on that very spot where He allowed a a calf to be erected, uh, supposedly as a symbol of the God of Israel, and it was a form of idolatry based on what God had revealed about images that you could make and not make. And so he said, look, you can go to Dan or you can go to Bethel, and he established two convenient places of worship for the people to go. Well, what happened in that time? Well, the Bible is very clear that some in the ten northern tribes— said, we're not putting up with this nonsense, and they moved to Judah. So that's why in the New Testament, when James opens his books, he, his, his epistle, he writes to the 12 tribes. There's an assumption that the 12 tribes are still very much in existence. There's an assumption in Paul's mind that the 12 tribes are known and are in existence when he stands before Felix. Uh, there is an assumption that Anna who's from the tribe of Ashir uh that's one of the 10 northern tribes that people uh, that these tribes are not lost at all so from this whole um idea that there were lost tribes you have british israelism which says well the british people are um those people who comprised the 10 lost tribes. And even until, you know, Queen Elizabeth I, I know it's been, what, 60 years or whatever, when she was uh, crowned, they brought out a rock, which they carried the crown on. And it was supposedly there was stone in Bethel, where God appeared to Jacob and he needed a pillow. So, you know, he made a rock as his pillow, and supposedly that's the rock that the Jews, um, that these 10 lost tribes eventually had and migrated to to England. Uh, they, they gave it back, by the way, uh, the, the stone to Israel. But, you know, it, it, it's kind of a silly story because it's based on a false pre- premise. So this whole idea that um, there are, you know, African-American Jews, and by the way, if you just Pull back their theology, and you look at their theology, their theology is less than honorable and faithful to God's word. Now that's not to say that there are not black people who are Jewish people, but those are descendants that uh, Solomon had, and so the Jewish nation recognized that there were Ethiopian Jews who are very black in skin color who came, um, needed to be brought back uh, to Israel uh, when the land was reestablished and opened. And they did a couple of, like, major uh, exoduses where they brought in airplanes, you know, scores of, of black Jewish people that were descendants from one of Solomon's wives. So there are black Jews, and those black Jews in Ethiopia were really true Jews but this whole idea that you know African Americans here in America make up the Ten Lost Tribes and it's just nonsense. And what should like be a red flag is just find out their theology and other areas, and you discover that the basic tenets of Christianity are not espoused to. But you see, because we live in a biblically illiterate society, and many of God's people don't have much theology at all, they think, well, everything's fine. Maybe they're right. Well, again, you know, it's kind of like if you were dealing, say, with a Roman Catholic. Roman Catholics deny penal substitution, that the substitutionary death of Jesus can impute the righteousness of God to your account. Well, if they're wrong like on a major issue, then that should be a red flag. Well, what else are they wrong on? And if, you know, these people who are calling themselves in America you know, Jews who came from the 10 lost tribes of Israel, even if you didn't understand much about the 10 lost tribes that are not lost at all, uh, all you have to do is pull back the veneer and find out, well, what do they teach in reference to being born again and other things? And you discover that they're way off in so many areas, which would immediately create, hopefully, a red flag in your mind, and maybe they're wrong on the very premise that they build their whole denomination on. So anyway, I hope that helps if, if I were going to that church, I would leave it. Um, you're, you're not in a
0: healthy church. All right. Eight, four, three, five, two, five, one, eight, five, nine. If you have a question on today's Bible line and our next caller said he was reading John six seventy, where it that reads, did I myself not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is a devil. This caller is wondering why Jesus would have picked someone he knew was a devil.
1: Well, it's a good question. Of course, he's dealing with Judas, and he's called the son of perdition, and it was prophesied in the prophet Zechariah that one of Christ's disciples would betray him even for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew quotes that during the time of Christ's betrayal through Judas. Now, with that said, Judas is not a puppet. He is not on strings where You know, God, the great puppet master, is manipulating his life so that he has no choice at all. Judas was an unbeliever because of the fact that he chose to reject Jesus. And and had he responded, had he somehow responded to the love and the plea of the Lord Jesus, then there would have been another who would have betrayed him. Why? Because it was prophesied that this would indeed happen. And so Judas is a free moral agent. If Jesus didn't know that Judas was going to betray him, then he really wouldn't be God. And so there are times when Christ exercises his omniscience. There are times when, in humility, he chooses not to live out of his divine attributes, but to put himself in total dependence upon the Spirit of God to live out the ministry and the life that Christ has called him to. But he knew. Judas, the son of perdition. There's only two people, by the way, in Scripture who are called the son of perdition. One is Judas, and the other is the coming Antichrist. And so he becomes somewhat of a model and type for the Antichrist who is yet to come. But here's a man who chose to reject Jesus. Why did he choose him? Well, because one of the things that God is going to do is he's going to make the scope of prophecy so very, very, very specific that no one who has an open heart, who is willing to study the scriptures, could miss God's Messiah. Because there are a number of prophecies that must take place if indeed Yeshua is the Messiah of Israel. And one of those prophecies is that he would have in his group, one who would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And that's where Judas fits in. Again, he's not a puppet. He chose to do it as a free moral agent, and he went to hell because of it, because he rejected the Savior of the world. Some say we went to hell because he committed suicide. No, he went to hell sooner than he might have, but he went to hell because he was an unbeliever um, not because he committed suicide. And he willfully chose to reject Jesus as Lord because his heart was driven by greed. Uh, he was the one who pilfered the money
0: back. And no one would have ever suspected Judas of that, but that's what he was. All right. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and our next caller says that he, um, well, let's see, we already read that one. So Uh, Robert from Beaufort writes, I've been hearing on the news about chips being implanted in the hand under the skin in the country of Sweden, and this is growing very rapidly in that country. They spoke about being able to pay at the store for goods, identification, entry into buildings and accounts, and other various services. Uh, The people there are willing to accept this, are willingly accepting this, and I know this is not considered the mark of the beast, but is this part of what we are to expect as the end times approach?
1: Well, it's a, it's a fair question. The Mark of the Beast is a mark uh, that is 666. Now, some have argued that an implant, namely a chip of some type, and this is not new in Sweden. There are aspects of the military 20 years ago when they were doing this. Um veterinarians have been doing it for a number of years. They put chips inside of you have some dogs, right, Rick? I do. Did you have any chips in any of your animals? Never did. I was too worried
0: about them being considered having the mark.
1: (laughs) Okay. So in either case, um, you know, it's not a new concept. What maybe is a little bit new is there's a town in Sweden where they operate the entire town on chip technology. Uh, would it be wrong for a person to take a chip in his hand? No, not necessarily. What would be wrong would be for a person to take the mark of the beast. Now, some argued, you know, 30 years ago when the chip technology started to come out and became a little more popular about 20 years ago, that maybe the antichrist would take this and you know put some kind of a preface to your identification code in the chip as 666. Uh, you know, I don't know. I I, I take it more. It's a visible mark on your hand or forehead of 666. In either case, what I do think is significant is the Bible teaches that during this coming future time of the tribulation, that no one will be able to buy or sell anything without the mark. And so what I could see happen is that when someone is willing to take the mark of the beast, and no one's going to be tricked into it you know, this is a willful decision that people will make. And so no one's going to be tricked into it, but the scripture is very clear that no one will be able to buy or sell anything. And he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead and he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or the number of the beasts of his name here then is wisdom let him who understands calculate the number of the beasts for the number is that of a man and his number is 666 so what I could see happening is that someone willfully says yes I want to give allegiance to the Antichrist they take the 666 mark on their hand or their forehead And in so doing, they could, at that point, be administered the chip by the government by which you would need to be able to purchase anything. Any old chip won't work. Just the Antichrist chip will work. In either case, there's going to be some kind of system that is going to be in place by which the Antichrist will be able to... um, minister his economic goals as he chooses. And he may indeed use chip technology. I don't think the chip is the mark, but I could see how the two might be connected. And you could see logically how this prophecy could even be fulfilled. God could have certainly have done it with a mark, And if you didn't have this particular marker, your hand or forehead, you couldn't have bought, bought anything. Let's say it had happened 300 years ago. But the fact that we live in this day of technology, it just seems like, wow, you could see how this could much more easily be fulfilled and administered to by this coming wicked son of perdition. Good
0: question. Let's go to the next one. I think someone's waiting on the air. Indeed, we do have a live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, Good morning. I have a question. Um, In the millennial kingdom, it's my understanding that there will again be animal sacrifice. And I know there's reference to it in the Old Testament, and I do believe there is some reference in the New Testament. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, It's mentioned in the prophet Ezekiel. There's uh, a number of temples that God has had in Israel's history. The first one, of course, Solomon built. It was destroyed by the Babylonians when Nebuchadnezzar came down and. Uh, carried away the two southern tribes, and he totally obliterated the temple. Zerubbabel rebuilt it. uh, Kind of a facelift was done to it by Herod. And uh, the Herodian temple, the Zerubbabel temple was the second temple. That was destroyed, just as Jesus said, in 70 AD. There is a third temple that is going to be built, um, and it will be in place by the time of the Antichrist. It's called, even by Jesus, this future temple, a holy place, because it's going to be set apart for God to accomplish his purposes. In that sense, it is holy, and that particular temple is the place where the Antichrist will go in and commit, mid-tribulation, the abomination of desolation. Then there's a fourth temple that is going to be built that you're referencing, and this is called the Millennial Temple. And there will be sacrifices done in the millennial temples, not to expiate God, to propitiate his wrath, because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Just like the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament era, when Moses was uh, commanding the children of Israel how to um, unfold the whole sacrificial system in the Torah, um, those things never took away sin, but they looked forward to a coming time when Messiah, the Lamb of God, once for all time, would provide a sacrifice that was just pictured and foreshadowed through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So why do it during the millennial reign? Well, a number of reasons. Number one, remember when the Messiah comes back, there will be people who will have survived the tribulation period. They are called tribulation saints. They are made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and they will enter the millennial reign of the Messiah in their natural bodies, and they will be able to marry and be given in marriage. Unlike those who are in resurrected bodies, we will be not angels, but like the angels in that we will neither marry nor have children and so forth. And so there will be people who will enter the kingdom in their natural bodies, and they will have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and they will need to be evangelized. If I were a tribulation saint, and thank God I won't be because I'm I'm going up in the rapture before, but let's just say for the sake of argument, I'd never heard the gospel in clarity and in power before the rapture, and I'm converted during the tribulation period, and I survive it. and. God said that unless those days had been cut short, no one would be able to survive, and I enter into the millennial reign married to Audrey, who also gets saved during the tribulation, and we have kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. You know, we could really populate uh, our family tree far more extensively than we will in this life, and my point is, is that while God has children, and so I would be a child of God entering into the millennial reign of Christ— That doesn't mean that God has grandchildren. Each of my children's children's children would have to make decisions for Jesus, one at a time. And so, one of the functions of the coming millennial temple will be to explain to people the significance of all that the temple system met. And remember, there'll be a lot of Jewish people. This is uh, the time when Messiah will rule on David's throne. And the Jewish people who listened and heeded the word of Christ and fled into the wilderness as Jesus told people, the Jewish people to do. And they'll be in a place in Jordan, maybe even places like Petra, where they will be supernaturally protected by God from the Antichrist. And those people, again, will enter in to the um, millennial reign. And this will be a very instructive tool, just like the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice. These sacrifices will point back to the sacrifice that Jesus has made. And I think it will be especially instructive for Jewish people, not to mention it will be instructive to Gentiles, because they will be required to send representatives from every nation on the earth to Jerusalem each year. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that. So these representatives in turn will go back, to their respective nations and say, well, this is what happened. And there'll be a whole evangelistic process that will unfold during this time. And of course, uh, there's a reason why God has the millennium. Uh, One, he's a promise keeping God. And I go through in one of my recent sermons, six reasons for the millennium. You know, some people say, why even have one? you know, why don't just have Jesus come back and end it all? I go through six specific reasons. And one reason in those six is it will really demonstrate how depraved man is, even independent of Satan, because Satan will be locked up for a thousand years and will be able to tempt absolutely no one. And so men will have to decide, and even with Jesus ruling on the earth, and the witness and the testimony, because you see, most of us today as Gentiles, we understand very little of the sacrificial system. Because, you know, we just rest and we should rest in the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. But what we don't see is how each of those various feasts in Israel all pointed to the Messiah's work. And so I think one of the things God will do is he'll use that millennial temple to demonstrate that Jesus was indeed the one spoken of for centuries who's now ruling on David's throne and one to whom you should give your life to. People would say, why wouldn't they give their life to Jesus with him literally being on David's throne in Jerusalem, ruling the world? For the same reason they didn't give their life to Jesus when he walked on the earth during his three-and-a-half-year-plus ministry uh, and was a viable witness to the nations that were there that they needed him as their savior. So again, no. um, it's kind of like the Lord's Supper. It looks back. Well, these animal sacrifices in a powerful, powerful, powerful way will testify all about Jesus in the millennial temple. Good question. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right. Our next caller uh, says that you taught an irrefutable argument for the actual account of the creation. I'm assuming they're talking about this past Sunday, and I've had many people affirm that. Uh, Given that, they're wondering how in the world anyone could possibly dispute that account. Well, they can't
1: unless they come to one of two conclusions. A, they allegorize the Scripture in an allegorical approach to Scripture. We call it hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a 50-cent word for the science of interpretation. So when we speak of hermeneutics, we're talking about how we interpret the Bible. And so there have been, unfortunately, in the course of church history, some weird hermeneutics that have been placed over the Scripture. Augustine was, for instance, very famous for his allegorical approach to God's Word. And so he took passages, and look, unless something is specifically called an allegory, and there's only a couple in all of Scripture, you don't allegorically interpret the Bible. And even if something's called an allegory, like Paul mentions in the book of Galatians he gives the interpretation to that allegory if you allegorize the scripture if you spiritualize it and say well this means this well how do you know this means this you don't and so how do we interpret the bible and how why don't we take an allegorical approach why do we take the plain approach the grammatical approach some would call it the literal approach of scripture but by a literal approach we're not denying figures of speech and similes and symbols and so forth. But when we understand, say, what the simile means or the symbol means, then we literally believe what it means. Um, So, you know, sometimes people are, you know, accused of taking a literal interpretation of the Bible. Well, we take the plain grammatical historical interpretation. How do I know to interpret the Bible that way? Because that's how God within the Scripture interprets the Bible. So, when you see the apostles interacting with Old Testament Scriptures... When you see Old Testament prophets like Daniel interacting with a predecessor, Jeremiah, how does he interpret Jeremiah? The plain, historical, literal, grammatical approach. So God left within the Bible itself how to interpret the Scripture. So to come up with another conclusion, you have to either, A, allegorize the Scripture, and that's really what, you know, Pat Robinson was doing in his recent comments about creation history. That's what so called apologist Tim Keller has been doing, um, which is very, very dangerous and I think unfaithful to what God has revealed. So I don't see him as an apologist at all. I think he's destroying the faith and no telling where he's going to go um, in, in the end with his theology. You know, we get, we get these people that I get red flags over, and then you give them five years and you end up, seeing, you see them walking away from the faith altogether. And I don't know where Keller is going to go. I, I I don't put any credence in what he says, especially now in light of his endorsement of the whole living out so-called ministry where people can call themselves gay Christians. Um, or the second way you can refute what I said is you just say, well, the Bible's not true. And so that's what the liberal Protestant does in our day. He uh, denies biblical inerrancy. So there's the issue of inerrancy and there's the issue of interpretation. And that's the only way you can refute that argument. And again, that's what the liberals for the most part do. Uh, They don't even take the allegorical approach because they say, well, you can't just, you know, um, pick out of the air some approach to interpreting the scripture because Hebrew literature wasn't meant to be read that way. So at least they're intellectually honest in that realm. So what do they do? They just say, well, this is myth this is not true. This is false. And so you have liberal Protestants today who are endorsing all kinds of wicked behavior. Why? Because they deny the infallibility of God's word. They deny biblical inerrancy. And what's so dangerous now is you've got groups like Cooperative Baptists that use the term inerrancy. They use a great term, but they use a different dictionary to define it and they come up with all kinds of gross error. We're out of time, but great questions today. Glad we could be here. Hope you can join us again, Lord willing, next Tuesday.